Well, please be seated, and as you do, would you welcome Rick Langer, who's going to teach us this morning. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Uh, it's fun to be back. If you have a Bible, turn with me to James chapter 1. I'll be continuing the series that you guys have been uh, doing for several weeks here now from the, from the book of James. Um, it really is a delight to be here. Appreciate the welcome. It's fun to, to connect again. Uh, the, the topic I've been given uh, to talk about, uh, this passage from James talks about suffering. The uh, title of the message was Good Suffering. And I, I got to thinking about that. Um, helping people in the midst of suffering, helping people in the midst of trial, uh, isn't all that easy. There's so many ways to go wrong. I, I was reminded several years ago, for reasons that now completely escape me, I decided it would be a good idea to run a marathon. I mean... I don't know what I was thinking, but I did. And so I got the little chart for, you know, this week run this many miles and the next week this many. And I worked that chart and I was in good shape. And I remember I had three 20-mile runs that I'd done leading up to this thing. So I should be good for my 26.2. And I head off down to San Diego and uh, start running the marathon. And I'm at about the halfway point, 13.1 miles. I look at my watch and I'm ahead of schedule. You know, I'm doing great. I am feeling like, you know, Superman here and thinking this is really going to go well. Um, I kind of come over this hill, come down by Mission Bay. We're running around that whole downtown San Diego area there. And uh, about mile 16, I feel this little, little, little cramp, just, just a little twitch in my calf. And I'm like, that can't be good. And I, I run about another half mile, all of a sudden, wham, full-blown leg cramp. And so I stop, I kind of, you know, walk off the course, I do this stretchy thing, and I, you know, start running again. And uh, about mile 17, 17 and a half, wham, there it goes again. By mile 19, both of my legs were cramping. And then about mile 21, I got into this weird thing where both sides of my leg were cramping. Now, when you get a leg cramp, usually what you do is you stretch it. When you stretch one side, you're actually contracting the other. The stretched side uncramps, but the contracted side cramps. So I'd just like to point out, when you get them on both sides, you're toast. I mean, there is nothing you can do. You lean forward, you cramp the front. You stretch out that way, you cramp the back. And it's like, what you know, and so... At about three miles of just sort of walking like that. Um, and, of course, you're at mile 21, and you're like, there's still five miles before the finish line. For normal human beings, that's a good long run. And I'm like, now what? So anyhow, I just, there's no way out but through. So I kept, you know, hobbling along. And the, uh, the, the race ended on the marine base down there by the airport. And I guess they decided they should get all the Marines or maybe the new recruits. I don't know who they were, but they had a batch of people cheering for everybody. And I remember this one woman, I mean, she caught me kind of face to face. I come around the corner and says, you're awesome. You're looking great. You're looking good. This is what I'm like, are you on drugs? <laughs> I'm like, you're looking good. There is a four letter word that describes how I look, but it's not good. I didn't look like I'd run for 26 miles. I looked like I'd been dragged behind a car for 26 miles. 
And she's like, yeah, she's on it. And I'm just like, would you shut up and go back to the barracks while I hobble on over the finish line, you know? She wasn't helping me. She was trying. She was very trying. Um, but it wasn't working. And the funny thing is, uh, there was somebody who did help. And that was the guy I met about mile 24. I was busy holding up a street light, trying to do something to get, you know, one of the legs working again. And I look over and there's a guy about 10 feet away doing the same thing on a stop sign. <laughs> and we kind of look at each other and go, yeah. Um, so we start kind of walking, hobbling together. We didn't talk. I mean, we're 24 miles into a marathon. Who wants to talk, right? But we walked together. And we'd stop together, and we'd stretch together, and then we'd hobble a little further. And it didn't make my legs any better, and it didn't make the pain go away, but it did make finishing the race just a little bit easier because someone was walking with me. And so what I want to do this morning, I have no illusion that I'm going to come here today and solve the problem of evil. Um, we have been talking about this for, for as long as human beings have been able to talk. Um, and I doubt that I'm going to be able to share the magic bullet that makes whatever trial that you might be facing or a loved one of yours might be facing right now. I have no magic bullet that will just make that go away. But the thing I do hope to do is to walk with you for a few minutes in the midst of those trials and uh, bring James along to join us in that and to give just a little bit of perspective that might help make that trial go just a little bit better and might give you the energy to walk just a little bit further. So let me read James chapter 1, verse 12. Um, here's what he writes. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Very, very simple, short passage. Easy to read, just a little bit hard to live. Now, as you guys know, this is not the first time in the book of James that he talks about trials. It's basically one verse into James. We're already starting to talk about trials. And so as we, we talk this morning, we'll focus primarily on some of the things that James talks about here. But I will indeed talk about some of the rest of the book, because this is a book that deals with the issue of trials at sort of every level. And the first thing I want to do is just to talk a little bit about James' perspective on the experience of trials themselves. What are they? Kind of his analysis, his comments, his understanding of some of those things, the assumptions he makes about them. Just to get into his head a little bit about how he views trials. And then at the end, I'll take a few minutes to just talk a little bit about the rewards, benefits, the things that, that end up on the backside of trials that are good to remind ourselves of. So let me first point out, in James in this passage... Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Um, you know, the interesting thing about trials, he goes on and then uses the language, talks about it as a trial, and then he talks about it as a test. And let me just make an observation that seems to be part of his assumption, and that is that trials have a point. Because the difference between a mere trial and a test is exactly that a test has a point. There's a reason why that test is there. This isn't just an accident that something happened to you. It's not like God was, was up in heaven, sitting at his desk, preparing a message, turns around too fast, boing, knocks off the cup of coffee, and he's like, whoa, no. That hit Langer right on the head. 
<laughs> Michael, get the mop. Uh, man, hope he didn't see it was me. No, that's not what happens when we experience a trial. These things aren't coming from nowhere. They aren't just random shots. And I don't want to create the impression that God deliberately does this or that or all these things to us. I just want to say these are things that, that have a point. And for James, generally speaking, the biggest point is the cultivation and development of our character. Trials can be used to make us better persons. And we'll come back around to this before we're done. But let me just plant that seed that for him, these trials are always a thing that has a point. There's a reason that they're there. The other thing I would point out is that when he uses the word test, there's two different ways that we actually use the word test. And, and I think this is particularly important in this context here for James's usage of the word. Um, a test can simply be a thing that you give someone to show if they have already learned something. On the other hand, some tests don't reveal knowledge. They actually create it. So, for example, if you talk to a high school basketball coach, this is that time of year where teams have been playing preseason games. And then coaches will often say, well, things have been great in the preseason, but the real test is league play. You know, when every game counts and all those kinds of things, the real test is league play. And, and what a coach is saying when he says that is not just it will show what's already there in our team, but he's also saying it will create our team. Our team will become the team it really is through the course of the test of league play. The test is the teaching. It is that which will instruct you. So if you happen to be in the midst of a test where you say, I am not ready for this. This demands patience I do not have. This provides strength I do not have. This demands courage that I lack. Welcome to biblical testing. Of course you're not ready for it. The test is the training. You will learn that patience through the course of the trial that's testing it. You will find that courage cultivated by going through that thing which you fear. That is the nature of the testing in this context. And that's why James talks about letting a test have its full effect. The test is supposed to have an effect Not just a revealing, but it produces something in us. So that's the first thing that James kind of assumes about tests, that they they have a point, and part of that point is to produce things in us. Second thing is that it's very clear that James thinks tests are normal. Um, They're just part of ordinary life and kind of part of ordinary life for everybody. In other words, the interesting thing about James is he assumes that tests don't just happen to bad people. Nobody writes a book entitled, Why Bad Things Happen to Bad People. I mean, because they're bad? Yeah, it kind of just all makes sense. Don't bother writing the book. But if you want to write a book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People, it'll probably become a bestseller because people wonder about that. And I'd just like to point out, James doesn't actually seem that surprised that bad things happen to good people. He doesn't explain it, but he kind of assumes it. So right at the beginning, in verse 2, he, he says, you know, count it all joy, my brethren, my brothers, uh, when you meet with all these various trials. So he's, he's kind of assuming the entire audience of his book, the good people to whom he is writing, are all experiencing trials or will be experiencing trials. He just figures that's natural. In this particular passage, verse 12, um, he talks about, you know, blesses man who bears up under trial. And you find out at the end of this verse that this is the person that, who has loved God. 
So trials come to the person who loves God. At the end of chapter 1, he talks about widows and orphans who are experiencing affliction. Is he saying, oh, those bad widows and orphans? No. He's assuming perfectly good widows and orphans will be experiencing affliction. And of course, in chapter 5, all the way at the end of the book, you'll find that the whole book of James is about trials. But at the end of that process, he talks about Job. And, you know, points to the trials of Job. And Job is the quintessential man who experienced trial even though he wasn't a bad man, but rather a good one. So James is just assuming that trials happen to good people normally. Now that in itself is probably a good thing to just stop and swallow for a minute. Um, because we're pretty quick to think, oftentimes to ourselves and sometimes to others, when we're really going through a hard time, we go, what did I do wrong? How have I sinned? What is God punishing me for? And I am happy to acknowledge the fact that sometimes God does use trials to correct us or rebuke us when we're doing things that are wrong. So that's possible. So if you have that connection that comes to mind, you go, oh yeah, there it is. That's fine. But don't go mining for a connection between your hardship and some sin that you have committed. Um, There's no particular expectation of that in the book of James. Quite likely that if you're a good person and experiencing a trial, there isn't some terrible hidden sin lurking beneath the surface. Now, that said, one of the interesting things I, I, uh, it struck me when I was thinking about this is that I think we really are kind of at odds with James on this point. People tend, if they don't blame themselves like I just talked about, then they blame God. But no matter what, it's hard for us to really accept that somehow this trial is normal. So, I spend a lot of time talking to people say, I don't know why God did this to me. And they begin to enumerate why this is so wrong. Why did he let me get into the relationship with this man if he knew he was going to leave me anyhow? Why did God do that to me? Why did God move me here away from my support system just to give me cancer now where there's no one around to support me? Why did God let me buy this house and then I lose my job? And we go through these stories, and it's what I would call it, we're demanding for every problem a theodicy. This is a term that philosophers use to describe a defense of the righteousness of God in the face of something that goes bad. How can God defend himself? And we want God to defend himself because why? Well, an unexplained bad thing has happened. And this is where we're going, wow, my expectations depart from James's. And here's the problem. I was thinking about this after talking with someone who was kind of giving me a worked example of this. And I thought, you know what's going on? This person has what I call extrapolated expectations. The expectations that they have of life, they have extrapolated from a few theological principles that they believe to be true or that they found to be true in Scripture. So it works roughly like this. I believe that God is good. Does that sound good? Yes, God's good. And therefore, he wouldn't want a bad thing to happen to me. I believe God is omniscient, so he would know if something bad was happening to me. And I believe God is all-powerful, so if something bad was happening to me, he would intervene and stop it. Therefore, I expect that nothing bad will ever happen to me. Okay. I understand the logic. But let me just make the observation, your expectations will be much better if you derive them from biblical narratives rather than extrapolate them from theological principles. 
Because as soon as you begin to read the biblical narrative, you'll quickly discover that, oh, lots of people suffer. God's people as a whole suffer. So you read the Old Testament and you find Israel suffering. You read the New Testament and you find the church suffering. The individuals suffer. Adam and Eve suffer. Moses suffered. Joseph suffered. Abraham suffered. Isaac suffered. All of these people were suffering. David suffered. Uh, Hannah suffered. Ruth and Naomi suffered. You know, you read the narratives of Scripture, it's almost impossible to find an example of a person who didn't suffer. So there may be a tension between your extrapolated theology and the biblical narrative, but let me just encourage you, never assume that the best way to get your expectations shaped is by extrapolating them from a handful of theological principles. Read the narratives, and you'll get much better expectations. And by the way, if you happen not to like narratives, just read the passages that actually talk about suffering, because they're everywhere. And Jesus tells you you'll suffer, and Paul tells you you'll suffer, and Peter tells you you'll suffer, and of course we're reading James, and he tells you you'll suffer. You know, when they actually turn their attention to talk about this issue itself, it's clear that the expectation is that we will indeed find suffering. Suffering is part of, in effect, normal life. It doesn't require that we have done something wrong for an explanation. It just seems to be part of how things work. One other thing to note is that trials are basically ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Uh, you've, you find this in James you know, chapter, chapter 1, verse 2, where he talks about you know, being tried in many and various ways, and this is probably in the context there of uh, persecution for your faith. And this passage here where he just talks about trials, it's probably more general trials, but the point is he's saying, look, all kinds of things are trials. You're going to have a lot of trials. People ask me, oh, do you think this is a trial? And I say, oh, pretty good chance. I mean, it's amazing the things that God can and will use for trial. I, I love doing <laughs> home improvement projects. I love working with my hands, building things, making things. You walk into my garage, you look at all these tools and say, you can't believe, you use all these tools. I'm like, trust me, I don't go to Home Depot to buy a tool I don't need. And I know it looks like there's a thousand tools, but you can't believe a thousand things that I have to do when I'm fixing something in the house. And when God decides, I'm going to shape this person into my character, there's a thousand tools that might be used. Except we don't call them tools, we call them trials. And they come in many and various kinds. And God uses them to shape and craft craft us into the people he wants us to be. I'm a university professor now, so I often hear the question, will this be on the test? So, just to clarify ourselves about the tests I'm talking about here, yes, it'll be on the test. Uh, You know, is is the exam going to be comprehensive? Buddy, the pop quizzes are comprehensive. Um, God has a knack for testing us about anything. He seems to like review tests. We're like, didn't I learn this lesson five years ago? Why am I here again? Yeah, good question. God's probably wondering that too, but here we are. So yes, this testing process is part of a normal refining and making and shaping us into the people God would have us be. Um, and, and it comes from everything. It comes from all directions. 
Um, and so it may be the loss of a job and financial testing that way. It may be illness, the loss of your health and physical pain and suffering. Um, yeah. Is death on the test? Yeah, actually death is the final. And let me point out, like most finals, if you've prepared yourself and studied for all the other tests, you'll do fine on the final. And part of what God wants us to do is become the kinds of people who can not only live well, but die well. Because that's also part of the test. So many and various things are on the tests. Now, you might wonder then, how do you study for a test like that? Um, You can imagine the review course. I wonder if they offer one of these on the Internet. Um, And let me just observe some of the things that James includes here in chapter 1 as ways you might prepare to deal well with a test. First of all, he talks about preparing your mind So he he has this wonderful statement about if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So he's saying, get your head ready for all these things. And if you don't know what's ask God. Now, by and large for us, that means if you want to find what does God say about this, you're thinking first of God's written word. We have a Bible which we can study that gives us the things that God has said to us. The first place to prepare yourself is to prepare your mind by studying and learning God's Word. Um, It is the place where we build the foundation for a God-shaped mind. James then also talks about preparing your faith. Um, He talks about the problem being a double-minded person who's blown this way and that by every wind of doctrine and things like that. And he says, don't do that. Drop anchor in a deep, secure faith. I have been talking to some folks. I've been watching things in recent years. and I'm amazed at the number of churches who are trying to adjust the teaching of Scripture to match up with the direction the winds are blowing in our culture today. They want to catch the wind of culture. And I think they forget a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I think they forget a gospel we've been commanded to guard that has been entrusted to us. And they become, I think, in some sense, double-minded. And we need to prepare ourselves by having a well-known and understood faith that we hold deeply. And we don't allow to be reshaped every time the cultural wind blows in a new direction. And then James also, James also talks about preparing your heart. This is not quite as obvious as you read through James chapter 1, but right before this verse that we're looking at, he talks about the rich person who's going to be kind of blown away in the midst of his pursuits. And it's interesting that his discussion about the rich people here, it isn't about the accumulation of their wealth. It isn't the money he's worried about, but rather their pursuits, the things that their heart is chasing after. And he's worried that, in effect, they have a disordered set of affections. They're loving the wrong things. They're pursuing riches that are fleeting. They're like the morning mist. They're like the grass that withers. You're loving a thing that's going away. And that's a formula for heartache, for anxiety, for fear, 
And he says, cultivate a love for the things that are eternal. Cultivate a love for the things in heaven where the moth doesn't eat and rust doesn't destroy. As long as you're setting your affection on these fleeting, perilous things, you'll find yourself, well, you'll find yourself suffering. And he says, don't do that. Prepare yourself in part by shaping your heart well. So these are some of the things that that James uh, talks about and describes there. Um, if you're to think, okay, so how do we actually take this test? And, and his command, how do we pass it? And he basically says you're supposed to remain in the test and remain steadfast. That remain in test, that is a good sort of basic principle. The, the key to passing a test is actually showing up for it, number one. And number two, don't leave before you're done. Now, that is a bigger problem for us when it comes to trial. Because I've noticed when I'm in a trial, my first thought isn't how do I make it through, but how do I make it out? I'm not looking for the gate of triumph at the end of trial. I'm looking for the escape hatch. Is there an exit off this freeway? Um, And, you know, the goal of a test isn't to get it done as soon as you can, but to get it done as well as you can. So when we find ourselves in suffering and hardship, Don't have the first thought be, how quickly can I get out of here? But rather, how can I, as James puts it here, bear up under it? How can I, as he says in verse 4, let this trial have its full effect, produce the desired outcome? Um, The other thing that we want to do is remain steadfast. And I... I think this is another one of these places where our extrapolated expectations sometimes create a problem. I think sometimes we feel like if I'm going to be steadfast, I need to go through this without any questions, without any problems, without any puzzles. I think the, the, the process works something like this. Um, we know that we're commanded to have faith. 1 John three twenty three or whatever it is, talk, commands us to have, have faith. We know that without faith it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11. Uh, We know that anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin, Romans 14. So when you put all this together, we have this feeling like, oh, questions imply doubts, and doubt implies a lack of faith. Therefore, I better not ask questions. And so we kind of go stoic in the midst of our sufferings, and we just say, I'll suck it up. And, you know, just an observation, after a while, sucking up sucks. It just gets really tiring. And the idea that we're supposed to go through all the hardship without ever questioning, I understand how you might extrapolate that. But back to the issue of what do you actually find in the Bible? And you'll suddenly find the Bible is a pile of people questioning God. So Abraham, the great father of our faith, questioning God about what about my heir? What about the land that I'm not getting? What... What's happening here? Uh, he's about to judge, God's about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, whoa, wait a minute. What, what if there's 50 righteous people? What if there's 40 righteous people? And you find Abraham questioning God about his ability to provide an answer prayer, about the goodness of his judgments. Uh, you find Moses questioning God about his wisdom and calling him, am I fit for the calling that you're giving me? Um, you find him questioning God's faithfulness in terms of ability to deliver Israel. We're sitting here at the Red Sea and the Pharaoh's coming up behind us. You know, well, what's the point of all this? Will he provide in the wilderness? There's an ongoing process of questioning that you find. David, my gosh, have you read the Psalms? 
favorite punctuation mark in the Psalms must be the question mark. You know, why? How long? When will it end? You know, these sorts of questions seem to be everywhere in Scripture. So we might extrapolate the notion that we shouldn't ask questions. I'd just like to point out that isn't what you actually find in the Bible. And let me just take a look at a particular example, a captain question, and that would be Jeremiah. I mean, we, we call this subsection of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's Confessions. That sounds really nice. What they really are is Jeremiah's angry complaints with God and questions he wants to ask him for the way God's mistreating him. But that's too many words, so we just call Jeremiah's confessions. But there's a lot of content here. And I was going through looking at the questions he asked, the, the why me questions. Woe is me. Why is my pain unceasing? Why was I born? There's a good one that he's asking God. You know, Why did you even have me born if this is what you were going to do to me? Um, bottom line is his life didn't make any sense. It was, it was pointless. Where's God? Why doesn't he act? Um, And particularly, God's people are suffering. Why do you do nothing? As he says, the Lord's become like an enemy. He's swallowed up Israel. He isn't doing what he's supposed to do. How long, oh Lord? I know these trials are supposed to be good. How long? Jeremiah In Lamentations, he says, Surely he's turned against his hand against me again and again the whole day long. Jeremiah is burned out on trials. And he's asking God, how long? By the way, Jeremiah isn't the only guy. 20 times in the book of Psalms, you find that question asked, how long? So the Bible doesn't seem to have some great problem with asking questions. And the key to being steadfast is not the iron refusal to ask a question because it seems those under great suffering were very prone to ask God very honest questions. But let me just make an observation about how this sort of teased out in Jeremiah's life. In effect, he journaled his feelings, but he walked by faith. He asked all these questions very frankly and open in his private times with God. But when it came time to decide his actual course of action, he said, I will trust and obey. And that's what he did. He tried to stop speaking because whenever he spoke, people hated him. But then he found he shut the words up within him and they burned in his breast. So he started preaching again. That's what he had to do. He'd preach these bad messages. They throw him in a miry pit. What does he do? He just keeps preaching the message because that's the only message that God gave him. Um, he preaches a message that the, you know, the Babylonians are going to come in. They're going to take over all of Israel and all this kind of stuff. And then God tells him, go buy a plot of land. Now, I want you to think, I know, it's like, hey, cool, buy a plot of land. No, he's up there preaching that the Babylonians are about to run over the whole land. What difference does he make if he goes buy the proper land if someone's going to run over the whole land? What does he do? He goes and buys the piece of land. He tells them, hey, write down all these warnings I've given you, put them in a scroll, give them to the king. What happens? The king slices and dices it with a penknife, throws it in the fireplace, and burns it all up. What does Jeremiah do? He writes another scroll. Wow. And at the end of the whole process, when every one of his terrible words has come true, and the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians have blown through, they've taken people off into Israel, and they come up to Jeremiah, who they view as a guy who's been sort of faithful and a man of integrity, and says, what do you want to do? Go anywhere you want. You can come with us, live in the king of Nebuchadnezzar and all that. And, and Jeremiah's like, no, no. I, 
These are the people that I was called to. And this is where I'll stay. And of course, the next thing the people do is they kill the governor who was appointed by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah's like, fine, but here I am. So he questioned and he questioned and he questioned. But at the same time, he obeyed and he obeyed and he obeyed. And I think this is one of those things that's enormously healthy. In effect, what we need to do is not harden our heart in the midst of a trial, but soften our heart. To be able to talk and share openly about what we're feeling, to have people around us who will share with that, to journal to God, to pray to God, but also to have that sense of, but nonetheless, here I am, and I must obey. I need to do what's right. I don't know why God has appointed me to this place and time, but I know that he has appointed me to this place and time. And there's nothing I can do but obey. So that's a great perspective I think we gain from, um, from Jeremiah. Um, now, back to this extrapolation thing. Once we've decided, oh, questions are okay, it's easy to extrapolate the next thought was, therefore, answers must be the expectation. So, you know, God says, hey, go ahead and models asking questions. In fact, you find passages like uh, John 15 where he says, hey, I call you friends. Well, what's the mark of a friend? A friend is one who knows what's going on, who knows what the father's doing. Uh, Jesus is giving you the sense that, oh, you're, you're the person you should understand. Yeah, great. But then you read the rest of the Bible and you suddenly realize, oh, questions are okay, but answers don't always follow. You know, Job, it seemed fine that he questioned God for, for 37 chapters. Unrelenting questions. Chapter 38, God shows up. Cool, this must be the answer. And what does God say? Job, dude, who are you to question me? Uh, where were you, by the way, where were you when I called the cosmos into existence? At this point, Job realized this is going badly. And, and then God continues. And by the way, what about Leviathan? What about the sea? What about the hill? What about, and, and Job's like, okay, stop. And God's like, oh no, I'm only warming up. And boom, there's three more chapters of God unpacking. And in effect, what he's saying, he isn't so much mad at Job. He's saying, Job, do you understand that you don't understand? Do you understand how much and how big these things are beyond you? And you can call that a question and an answer. You can call that a question and a question. Do what you want with it. I'm just making the observation that the answers don't come so cleanly attached to the questions. But that said, let me kind of release God from the obligation to be tried in our courts. When we bring a case against him, we don't actually have standing to try that case. So it's okay if he chooses not to answer. But let me point out, every time he does answer, it's an act of grace on his part because he knows what we need. And let me point out, there's, there are answers to this question of why that occur in Scripture. And let me just talk about two or three of these um, just in terms of trying to give, I think, biblical answers or perspective at least on this question of, of the whys and hows of suffering. Number one, in the Bible, God never really solves or even addresses or seems to care very much about the solving the problem of evil. He doesn't solve the problem of evil. He shares it. So the theology of Scripture is, in effect, not a God who explains evil, but actually enters into it with us. 
He's born into the likeness of men. He enters a fallen world. He becomes a slave who becomes obedient, even obedient unto death on a cross. And in so doing, he's been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And the net effect of that is we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but has been tested in every way as we are. And therefore, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we'll find grace and mercy to help in time of need. It's a promise not of explanation, but of companionship. You know what he's doing? He's that funny dude leaning on the stop sign 24 miles into my marathon. And he's just saying, I'll walk with you. I'll walk with you. Your leg won't get better. I won't explain the cramps. I still, what did I do wrong? I trained like a madman. I drank water. I hydrated. Why did I have like, I have no idea. But it was nice to have someone walk with me. And so much of the biblical answer to the problem of evil is the companionship of God. That he walks with us. That trials are a place that we meet him, not a place where we miss him. Second thing that's clear from Scripture is that we see through a glass darkly. <laughs> There's, we don't see well. I, don't, I didn't ever wear glasses. You guys have been around for trendy a long time or familiar with that fact. You probably remember me glasses-less. Um, now that I have glasses, I realize why people would always be wiping their glasses. Nothing more irritating than smudges on your glasses. Um, and basically what, what Paul is saying in, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13 there is that, guys... Your glasses are smudged. You see darkly. You see badly. You don't see clearly. So a lot of times when we make our explanations of the problem of evil, we talk about the free will defense. You know, the reason we have evil is because of human freedom and God has to give us real freedom. So we talk these things out. And if you think through those things carefully, you're usually about half satisfied. And I'd just like to say that's pretty good. Oh, fuzzy vision, dark glass person. Um, that's probably about all you'll get. And sometimes that's pretty painful. Sometimes it seems like mm, a bad healing. It, I, I think of cancer and uh, the, you know, chemotherapy as a way to respond to cancer. I know one day doctors will look at what we do to people who have cancer and think, you guys are crazy. Why did you do that to these poor people? Well, we did that because it's the best we had. And one day it'll be the equivalent how we look at people you know, being bled, having leeches put on them. I understand all that. But right now, all we've got for the problem of evil are intellectual leeches. It'd be great if we had something that was really a whole lot better than that. But this is the best we have. And sometimes it seems to cause more pain than the disease. I, I, I realize that. And sometimes that's why it's better to be silent than to try and explain and speak up. But at the same time, there's real perspective to be had in that. There's a huge amount of truth in the fact that a large portion of evil comes from human freedom and human sin. Don't despise the measure of explanation that really comes from that. Um, And another thing that we discover in Scripture very clearly is that this isn't a book about our story. It's a book about God's story. The Bible is written for us, but it isn't written about us. The point of the Bible is the story of God. The glory of the narrative is the glory of God. The time frame of the Bible is the time frame of God. 
And this makes havoc for our desires and expectations. When we hear that God punishes the unjust and blesses the just, we want it to always happen in the context of three score and ten. But you know it doesn't always because it isn't a book written on our time frame, but God's time frame. You guys have been around for a while, may have heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. We want God to write blog posts, but instead he writes a Russian novel. You're chapter 53, you know, there's about 114 more coming. It's a good book. It's a great book. It's a masterpiece, but it's not actually about you. And your chapter may not make sense if you don't read it in the context of the whole book, right? So this is this other thing to say, man, I need to dial back and see things from God's perspective. And just a final kind of a set of observations quickly about suffering, just things that the Bible says are true of suffering, that we, whether we like this or not, it'd be good to remind ourselves of it. They're comparatively light and short. Whew, you must be unfamiliar with what I'm going through. No, no, I get it. But let me just remind you of this whole three score and ten thing. I don't know how long you've been suffering, but the bottom line is to God, three score and ten is a short time. I know that sounds crazy, but I'm like spitting distance to three score right now. And I'm suddenly going, dang, it does seem short. I'm looking at my grandkids. Two of them. And going, it does seem short. This momentary light affliction. God promises that our joy, our sorrows will ultimately be turned to joy. Um, Our sorrows teach us discipline. Trials refine our character. Trials reveal the glory of God. Trials yield a good harvest in due time. There's a great phrase. The trials are the means by which we enter into the kingdom of God. And finally, trials are a sign of our connection to God, not our distance from him. So these are some things that the Bible just says about trials. And back to that issue of preparing for trials by preparing your mind. To keep these things in mind that the Bible says are true of trials. Even when you don't feel those things, it's good to know that those things are true. So that's some of the perspective James gives us on, on trials. Let me just make a couple of real quick comments at the end here about the rewards that we get for trials. You know, what's the outcome on the back end? Um, in effect, blessings now and blessings then. I mean, that's really what James is telling you. The first blessing that James seems most preoccupied with is a blessing you get here and now, and that's the blessing of character, the blessing of maturity. Trials keep you from being a spiritual dwarf. They make you grow up. They make you mature. You, you acquire character through these sorts of experiences. And let me just point out the, a couple of things about the blessings of, of, of character. I mean, kind of tangible, ordinary blessings. Character helps you cultivate gratitude for good things that happen to you. Character lets you learn to savor the joys that do come your way instead of resenting the things that you miss. Um, And we learn to savor these goods by cultivating a character quality called gratitude. Forgiveness is a character quality that helps us deal with the bad things 
that come. So learning to dismiss the bad things, to let them go. And that's a character quality we call being forgiving. And these things allow the good things to be savored and the bad things to be forgotten and therefore your life to simply be better. And you know, so often we practice the inverse where we savor the bad and cultivate what's called bitterness. And we forget the good and thereby cultivate what you would call entitlement. Every time a good thing happens, no explanation required. Um, Of course I get good things because, I don't know, I'm me. Uh, And we fail to have gratitude, so we fail to savor the things that are good. So we miss out on so much in our lives. And finally, James talks about these rewards, this image of a crown of life that comes to those who have loved him. And I'd love to preach a whole sermon or a sermon series on heaven. I can't even begin to do that here and now. But the one thing, just even me thinking about this this past week, I've suddenly realized how long has it been since I've stopped and thought about heaven. And I'm suddenly a little sad that I haven't done that. I remember when Crystal was here and was playing soccer at Rev. And I would go and pick her up after soccer practice, which would go till late. And I remember the first time I did that, I parked the car in the parking lot there, stood up on the bluff that looks down to where the soccer fields were. And Rev is located there in Mentone. You can see all the way down the valley. And the sun is setting and the clouds are turning purple and the mountains are there. And I'm standing, I'm looking down and going, when was the last time I stopped and looked down the valley? I thought, oh my gosh, it's been forever. I couldn't remember. And every now and then, it's not so bad to stop and look down the valley to eternity and stop and think, what will it be like to live in a place where every tear is wiped dry? What will it be like to live in a place where there's no more sorrow, no more sadness, when death, death isn't on the test anymore? Wow. And that's the prospect that we have. So this is some of the perspective that James gives. Let's talk, stop, take a moment to pray that we might put these things into our heart and live them out in the context of our lives. And Lord, that is my prayer. It doesn't help to simply know facts. What helps is to believe and live them. And Lord, we pray for your grace now for each and every one of us, that we would really be people who might follow Jeremiah's example in the sense of being open and willing to ask questions at the same time being committed to obeying and doing the things that you've called us to do. Lord, help us as well to draw close and to cultivate character that both pleases you and makes our lives better. And Lord, I pray the effect of this is that you might help us to suffer well and bear up under trials that we might receive that crown of life. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.